Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. The smiling faces that will that will help me a lot. Um, I really I really appreciate this opportunity um, to stand up here and to teach God's word. Um, this congregation has been such a blessing to Harmony and I and our family since we've gotten here. Um, so it feels normally I feel really nervous to stand up and do something like this in front of people, but you have all been so welcoming and kind that um, this is actually really easy like compared to what it normally would be. So um, I appreciate you all, and let's dig into the Word together. Um, I'll introduce it to you, and then we'll have a word of prayer together, and then we'll study through Philippians 2, 1 through 11, okay? Um, so why are we studying this one? <clears throat> Just to introduce it, well, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 talks about the incarnation. Um, that's just one of those big uh, Latin root words uh, that means in flesh thing or something about being in the flesh. Um, when Harmony and I got married, we had a Cuban friend who speaks Spanish, obviously, and she was translating for us that verse that says the two become one flesh, but in Spanish, carne means meat. So she said the two become one meat when she was describing that to us. So ever, ever since then, we've kind of had that little inside joke that our marriage, in our marriage, we are one meat together. Um, and it always reminds us that no matter what happens, um, we're, we're in it together. And that's kind of what the incarnation means, that God is in, in this together with us, whatever we go through. Um, the second reason we're studying this is because it's easy to connect to. This passage talks about God experiencing things as we do, um, not only through the incarnation, but the way that Paul describes it happening. Jesus is going through something, experiencing something on a, on a very basic level like we do as humans every day. Um, and then the third reason that I picked this passage is because of simply the elegance of the language and uh, the, way that, the way that Paul words this, and especially as I dusted off the Greek books and dug into those again, um, he's really trying to overwhelm us with the greatness of God. And I was really reminded of that again through the music this morning, um, the special, and, and then the worship. God is very great. He's very awesome. And what he's done for us is amazing. Um, and that's why we're going to dig into this today. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get to it. Lord God, you are, you are very great. You are wonderful, and the things that you have done for us are amazing and overwhelming. And uh, today, in light of that, the fact that you invite us into your presence and offer your presence to us, I ask that your spirit would be with us and that you would guide this study, um, that you would guide our hearts and minds into understanding. And as is our custom, God, I, I pray that you would bless uh, people of our nation, um, the, the people who serve us on a daily basis. I pray that you would just pour your abundant blessings on all of us um, and continue to lead us until you come back and we get to be with you forever. Amen. All right. <clears throat> um, it was helpful for me to read Acts 16, 1 through 40 as I was getting ready for this because that talks about the formation of the church in Philippi. Um, so if you'd turn over really quick to Acts chapter 16, and we'll just kind of highlight a couple of things from there before we get into this. Acts chapter 16, <clears throat> um, if you look at it, you'll see that Paul um, is discipling Timothy, and he is going around on his missionary journey. And eventually he has this vision. He's, he's been trying to go here and there, and the, the Spirit keeps forbidding him from going to these different places, it says. And finally he has a vision, and Paul sees this Macedonian man. 
And the Macedonian man is saying, come over to Macedonia and minister to us. And so Paul takes that as uh, uh, God, is, the Spirit is telling him to go, to go to Macedonia, which is the region in the Roman Empire where Philippi is located. Um, you'll see that in chapter 16 and then verse 6 and so on. Um, it talks about the conversion of Lydia, uh, the woman who he ministered to by the river there. Um, and then it talks about Paul and Silas being thrown in prison. Um, so Paul's experience in Philippi and the formation of that church uh, was one of conflict, obviously, and suffering. Um, but through that, the Philippian jailer is converted, and you come down to the end of the chapter, um, and Paul comes out of prison finally, and uh, he goes about his ministry and leaves Philippi. So that's kind of the background there of the formation of that church. Back over in Philippians, I would like to read together chapter 1 just so we can kind of get um, the sense of that. Paul is going to remind us of that experience in Acts chapter 16. So we will read this together and then we'll really dig in with chapter 2 and 1 through 11. <clears throat> so beginning with 1 verse 1, Paul says, uh, this is from Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reading from the English Standard Version just in case you were curious. Verse 3 says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So obviously Paul's writing this from prison, right? Um, not his Philippian prison, but later on you know that he was thrown, uh, taken to prison um, in Rome. And that's just probably where he's writing this. For God is my witness, verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So right at the beginning, um, just to summarize, Paul is very concerned. The Philippians are kind of a mature set of believers. They, they're very concerned for the spread of the gospel, um, and they have experienced suffering because of that. Um, and so Paul feels a really close connection to them. Um, but he wants to spur them on to perfection. That's what he's describing here. I want, even though like I feel that, that connection with you and you're very mature believers, I want you to spur on even more and more. We'll see that come out here in a moment. I want you to know, brothers, this is verse 12, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But so what, is basically what he's saying in verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, the gospel is proclaimed, or Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. <clears throat> then he says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that 
through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is way better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, here we go. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So the conflict that he was engaged in, they witnessed, we saw that in Acts, right? He was in Philippi, and the formation of that church was fraught with conflict. He was thrown in prison, um, and then he left the city, uh, leaving the Philippian church behind to, to take care of its own ministry. In chapter 2, verse 1, this is where we start to dig in, that word so, at the beginning, does everyone's Bible say so first? No? What is What, what kind of words? If? Okay. Um, all right. Those words are, in Greek, it, it goes if so, which is fine, but the point is that Paul is saying, think about what I've just said. And so pay attention especially uh, to verses 29 and 30 of chapter 1. He's saying, when he says so, he's saying, pay careful attention to what I've just said, right? That's what the word so means. And what did he say in 29 and 30? It's been granted to you that you should believe in Christ, and not only that, but that you should suffer or have conflict, right? Because you believe in him. And um, he says that you saw that I was engaged in that same conflict. So those are the realities that he wants them to remember as he's talking to them right now. That's what the so means. Um, suffering and conflict are an ongoing reality for the Philippian believers. And you see that in the book of Acts. Um, this made me think of how the difficulties and trials that arise in our lives can really surprise us. Um, they shouldn't, but often that they do because we're not always thinking about the connection between our belief in God and the conflict that comes from that. And it can be a very small thing. Like You can probably think of examples from this week in your own life of little conflicts or problems that arise. Um, for me, even just in preparing for this, it's been a long time since I've actually prepared and taught people um, from the Word of God in this kind of a setting. And as I was doing that, I, could, I noticed a, really a difference and a change in the way that my mind was thinking about things and, um, and processing things. It was like, it was like the enemy was actually trying... Um, to deter me, to, to get me to be afraid of it, to get me to, to not want to do it. Um, and that's just a little small example. But those kind of things prop up in a person's life when they choose to believe and to follow Christ and to be obedient to the things that he's teaching us. Um, it's a human reality, um, but it's unique for the Christian. In other words, everybody suffers as a human. We all have problems and difficulties, whether you're a Christian or not. But it's unique as a Christian because it intensifies when you seek to obey Christ. And I'm sure that you can all see that happening when you, 
when you say, I'm going to step out and believe God today in something. I'm going to step out and do this thing that I feel like the Spirit's telling me to do. And you do it. And then you feel that, that press from the enemy, right? I think we all understand that. When Paul understands that as well, um, he's, uh, he's, so when he's uh, getting going here in chapter 2, verse 1, he's trying to offer us a reasonable response to when that happens. Because it is a reality. What's our reasonable response when it happens? Um, and then he says, so the, we talked about those two words. Some of your first word was since, right? Mine is so, but since is also there. What does since mean? Why do we say since or if? Why do we say that? Either, either you're saying if or since. It's the same word in Greek, so you have to kind of look at the context to know what he's saying. When you say if, what are you doing? Are you saying you're questioning something, right? You're saying if this is a reality, well, then this should happen. You're questioning, right? When you say since, you're saying, I believe this is a reality, therefore this will happen, right? That's the difference between how you translate it. So in my opinion, in studying this, Paul is saying since here, which most of your translations say, since this is true, um, et cetera, et cetera. So think of it that way. So what he's saying in this passage in chapter one, or 2, verse 2, recall the reality of what I'm about to tell you. So responding to suffering, the first thing we do is recall this reality that he's about to say. <clears throat> encouragement in Christ. There's not if there's encouragement in Christ, right? That's not true. It's since there's encouragement in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Paul's saying recall that reality. It's not if there's encouragement in Christ. Since that is a reality, you know, continue in that, in that thinking. There is encouragement in Christ. There is comfort from love. There is participation in the Spirit. There is affection, just in general. And that word there is literally the bowels or the intestines. That's, that's literally what it means in Greek. Whereas we say, we talk about our heart and our culture, right? We say, I love you with all of my heart. And the Greek culture back then, you might have said, I love you with all of my bowels or my intestines. That's where their seat of affection was. So you can go tell your significant other that today if you want. I love you with all of my bowels, every, everything in me. That's, that's kind of what that means. If there's anything like that, Paul says, since that's a reality, if there's sympathy and compassion, since there is sympathy and compassion, since those things are a reality, continue on now, verse 3, and do the following things. And then he starts it by saying, um, excuse me, complete, did I get that part? Excuse me. Right, so... That's right, okay. So, and then verse 2 begins, complete my joy, right? So when Paul says complete my joy, he means I've already got some of it, right? I already have joy because I'm living in the reality that I've just described to you, which was encouragement in Christ, comfort, participation, affection, sympathy, and compassion. I already have joy because of those things. Even in the midst of my suffering and conflict, I have joy. And he's saying, but you can do something actually to give me more joy and gladness. He's talking to the Philippians. To make my joy complete, you can be a unified group of believers, is basically what he's saying here. It's kind of a cumbersome sentence in the Greek, but literally uh, the word that jumped out of me is one that literally translates as a together psyche. You, you know what the word psyche means? You've, have you heard that before? It's kind of a, it's a psychological term, obviously. It's, it's psyche. That's like where the deepest part of us, where we understand who we truly are, right? 
where our feelings and our thoughts and understanding about who we are reside. That's our psyche. Um, he's saying, let that be be together with everybody else's. Whatever you truly understand yourself to be, let that be together with everybody else and who they truly understand themselves to be. Um, that's what it means to be unified in in Christian fellowship. Not letting, which is common in the world today in our culture, to let our individuality kind of separate us from each other. I'm this way, therefore I don't really connect with, with you and you and you because I'm this way and you're that way. That's that's not what he's saying here. It's it's letting, not letting that individuality divide us, not being afraid to be known at that deepest level of our psyche, not being afraid perhaps to even allow our self-concept to grow and change and mature. So it's having having connection, a true connection of inside of who we are, and then letting that be connected with everybody else, and not letting ourselves be in conflict with each other. Seeking unity and healing in relationships. So in verse 3, he goes on and continues with this idea, nothing from rivalry, which is kind of a political term. It's, it means selfish ambition, where you're trying to, to become better than the other person. That doesn't belong in Christian fellowship. Um, nothing from conceit. The literal word there is empty glory. In other words, thinking very highly of yourself, but not really having any reason to think that. Um, Consider others to supersede you. Um, some of your versions, might, mine says, actually more significant than yourselves. Is that kind of the concept that you get there in verse 3? Okay. Uh, literally, it means somebody superseding you, like being in a higher position than you. It may not actually be the reality. Like when Christ washed the disciples' feet, in reality, they were not greater people than him, right? In fact, just the opposite. But he treated them as though they were, they were higher and superseded him in rank, Right? Or in the military, we have the different ranks, and a person of lower rank is supposed to be respectful and, and stand a certain way when they talk to their, their superior or to salute when they talk to an officer. Um, somebody of higher rank, we're supposed to be respectful, and there's different ranks. But the best leaders I've had in the military are those who outrank me, and yet they come down to my level and treat me with respect and teach me and, and help me along in that thing. So this is kind of that, that concept there. He's saying, consider others to supersede you. Treat them, even if they're not, even if literally they are not better or higher than you, treat them as though they were. Um, that's how Christian fellowship looks. And then caring for the interests of others, verse 4. Um, do, you, do your versions have the word only in there? Most of them say not merely or not only, looking to your own interests, right? And I can understand why it gets translated that way. Um, the word only is not really there. Literally, it's just saying, don't look at your own interests, but look at the interests of others. That's literally what it's saying. Um, the implication, I think, is that it's it's expected that we're going to look for our own interests. That that's Christian stewardship. We're gonna we're gonna be good stewards of what we have and and what we take care of. Um, the point here is to not focus on that, to not let that be your primary focus, but let your primary focus be what the needs of others are, and that's what Christian fellowship looks like. <clears throat> And then he goes to the meat of the passage here, um, the example of Christ, which is verses 5 through 8. Have, so he's, he's kind of built this up, if I can summarize so far. He's, he's saying suffering and, and can conflict our reality, um, but respond to that uh, by recalling, recalling what the reality is in Christ. And this is what that looks like. And he says, in fact, 
look at the example of Christ himself and be like that. So this is, to me, this is really amazing because um, Christ is God. We all know that. But Paul is saying, you, I'm inviting you now, God is inviting us now to come into that same experience that he had. In other words, this is where we can connect with him on a very, very human level. We can, we can follow the, the steps that Christ took, not literally, but the same type of sentiment. So he's saying, have that same kind of attitude in yourself, that same kind of thinking, that same kind of mind that drove Christ to do this thing. And this is what he did. He's going to explain that here. Um, what, is, what, is he, what is he literally doing here? Because Christ has God... God has a, a self-concept, right? Or at least that's, I mean, it's a human term, obviously. But he has an understanding of who he is. He must have. He, he's, he's a conscious being. He, uh, he has an understanding of who and what he is. Um, so for him to, to take that and to set it aside, which this passage is going to talk about here, he sets that, that concept of himself aside and takes on this other reality, this other concept. That's something that we do and can connect with on a daily basis. We're, we're doing something, whether by choice or by force, that takes us out of our comfort zone or out of our concept of who we are, right? You can think of any, any number of examples, like uh, the five that popped up to me, marriage is one. You enter that by choice, right? You choose to become married and to unite your life to another person. And, and it's a very joyful and exciting thing and then as you continue to walk through it, you find yourself coming out, coming out of your comfort zone on so many, so many ways, right? Marriage, as you walk through, you are sacrificing and giving of yourself um, in order to, to make that union happen repeatedly, continually. It's, it takes us out of just our individual self and makes us one meat, right? One flesh. Um, raising children, that's something that you do by choice primarily. Sometimes it can happen by accident, obviously, but when, when it happens by accident and the, when the parents choose to love and care for that child, um, that takes a lot of sacrifice and, uh, and giving of the self. It takes us out of our comfort zone. I want to, at my very basis level, I want to be doing this, but my child is crying and my child is needing me. My child needs his diaper changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That takes us out of our, our normal comfort and routine. Um, public speaking is another one for me to, and again, this is way easier than it has been for me in the past, like right now, today, this is way easier. Um, but public speaking is normally a very, very difficult thing for me. Like if I know I'm going to be, like if I know one month down the line, I'm going to have to do this thing, like for that whole month, I'm, my stomach will be tied up in knots. Um, it's very, it gets very uncomfortable. Um, but Pressing through it um, to the other side makes makes you stronger. Whatever that thing is, whether it's public speaking or whether it's uh, practical evaluations in school, EOD school, my army school that I went through for nine months was a continuous evaluation of my performance at something, and that is very uncomfortable for me. When somebody, when I'm having to do something and somebody's looking at me and making sure because I have to do it, I, I want to do it perfectly, and so to wa have, have someone watching me do it and evaluating me for it. That's very uncomfortable. But pressing through that and coming out the other side had, had great reward, even though it was uncomfortable. Um, and there are many examples you could probably think of. But doing those things 
and persevering to the end deepens our connection to Christ because that's exactly what he did. He brought himself out of his comfort zone, out of his self-concept of who he was, and he pushed through it to the very end. He did not quit, and he received great reward for it. Amen. We can connect to him on that level. And so what exactly did that experience look like for Christ? Um, Well, where was he? Verse 6 says that he was in the form of God, right? He was in the form of God, and he was equal to God. My, My version says he had equality with God, but he did not hold on to that. The word grasp, he did not selfishly cling to it is kind of the idea there. He he is God. Think of him up there, wherever heaven is. Think of him there, and he is God, and he is equal with God, and he is in the likeness and the image, whatever you <clears throat> want to say of God. He is very God, but he does not cling selfishly to that. He he lets it go. He lets the God uh, the God clothes, the God suit go and puts on the man suit. Um, he lets go of that self-reality. Um, he did it instead of clinging, instead of selfishly clinging. He divested himself of his prerogatives as a way to think of that. He took the form of a servant. He was in the likeness of humankind. And verse 8, um, there's, it's a passive word there. It says he finds himself in human form. He finds himself with this on him somehow. Like he, so I don't know how it happens in God's mind, but he's up there and he's God, and then somehow he finds himself down here like this. And he's just like us, and he's got hands and feet and, and a head, and he has to breathe, and he has to eat food, and he has to, all the things that a human does, he finds himself in that situation. And it says, finding himself like that, he went even further humbling himself. So he humbled himself once as God, right? As God, he humbles himself and finds himself like this. And then as a man, he humbles himself again, um, becoming obedient to his father. So he, he treats his father God now like he, is, like he is a superior. Even though he's equal, he treats God, the father, like he's his superior and becomes obedient to him, which is what we have to do. We can connect to, to God on that level now, right? He made himself nothing, form of a servant, likeness of humankind. Um, He experiences self-sacrifice on the human level by humbling himself as a man again, even to the point of death. So he does that all the way without quitting, right? So he he obeys to the point of even dying, like he's willing to die in his obedience to his father. And not only that, but it says, not only did he die, but he died on a cross, which is significant because... In Hebrew culture, to die on a cross is considered a curse, right? So not only does he die in obedience, but he dies obediently as a curse. So think about the great height from which he, he came and went to. Like He's very God in heaven, and he empties himself of that, and he becomes a, what is considered a curse, completely, completely going through it, not quitting to the very end, even though he wanted to, right? And, and oftentimes I want to quit, right? Uh, oftentimes we want to quit when we're going through these things that require sacrifice and that require us to come out of our comfort zone and our self-understanding. He wanted to quit. We see that in the Gospels when he's praying in the garden. He says, God, please, in his humanness, right? Like we experience on a human level, God, please, I don't want to go through with this, but I will do it because it's your will. He wanted to quit on that very basic human level, but he did not because it was God's will and he wanted nothing more than to do God's will. 
And therefore, verses 9 through 11 describe the great reward that comes from going through this process. So Jesus goes through the process of this thing, right? He empties himself. He, he uh, gives up his self-understanding. And he does it without quitting. And so it describes this reward that God highly exalts Jesus, right? In verse 9, God highly exalted him. That is Jesus. God, the Father here, gives him a name above all names, a name greater than any name. And God implied here is that God fully endorses that all creation worship Jesus and give him honor and call him Lord, right? God, the Father, fully endorses that, which is... To the Jewish mind, that's, a, that's totally blowing the mind because he's a man. They, they, Jesus is a man to the Jewish people, right? Especially here in the context of the Gospels and in this, this setting here. Jesus was only a man. So for God to honor him that way um, would, would blow their mind. Um, obviously, he's not only a man. That's why this is okay for God to do this. But God does this. Um, and if you look closely you can see that God the Father is also experiencing the same thing. Because think about it. If God, God the Father, it is his due, it is his um, by nature uh, that we worship him, right? He is God. He, he is God the Father. He is the one that we normally think of when we think of God, right? And so for him to exalt Jesus and give him a name above all names and endorse that creation, worship him, worship Jesus, God is sacrificing, God the Father is sacrificing something. Within the relationship of the Godhead, there's this constant reciprocal, it seems like here, sacrificing to each other and, and divesting themselves of, of, of who they are and constantly sharing and, and sacrificing, kind of like a marriage should be. Um, that's, that's how they exist. And so God does this too, gives Jesus that honor. But in giving Jesus that honor, what does it say happens at the very end? It says the very last little phrase there is to the glory of God the Father, right? You see that? So even in sacrificing this honor to Jesus, his son, God the Father still receives glory. And so it's that same concept in, in us too. When we sacrifice for one another in this Christian fellowship, um, in a marriage, in a relationship, in a friendship, sacrificing to each other and giving up of ourselves and coming out of our self uh, concept and comfort zone, when we do that, in the end, the reward for us is also very great even though in the moment they can feel very hard and pressing. In the end, the reward is very great, just like what Jesus experiences here. <clears throat> so, um, with that in mind, uh, to conclude here, if I had to summarize, reality is a suffering, uh, reality of suffering and trials uh, of life. There is that reality, right? Especially as we seek to be obedient to God, that we feel it intensify. Um, but, Paul says, we can find joy in the midst of suffering by remembering how awesome it is to be in Christ, which were those things that he described. Um, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, etc., etc. We recall how awesome that is when we are experiencing that conflict and suffering. And we share in that reality with our fellow Christians, um, in the unity with our fellow Christians. And uh, point number two, God himself fully understands what it means to suffer and be outside of his comfort zone because he did that in the incarnation. And God the Father himself does that in honoring his son um, above everyone else. And there are amazing rewards for going through this process and not quitting. Um, and not only in the next life, but also in this life, right? When we, when we go through those things 
um, when we self-sacrifice, when we experience the things that, um, that come at us on a daily basis, there is reward in this life for, for persevering through those things. Um, but the great reward, of course, is at the end when Jesus comes back and we all look forward to that. So um, that was what I got from this passage. Um, I'd be happy to print these notes if anybody wants them, but I want to just conclude by reading through chapter 2, 1 through 11 and understanding after we've studied it through. Let's read it together, and then we'll close in prayer. <clears throat> All right. So chapter 2 and verse 1. So, recalling everything that I've told you, if there is any encouragement in Christ, rather, since there is encouragement in Christ, and since there is comfort from love, and since there is participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, make my joy complete by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be selfishly clung to, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He found himself in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. God, we are uh, very thankful for the great thing that you have done in Jesus. Thank you that we can connect to you on that level. Thank you that you encourage us in Christ and uh, continue to spur us on to even better and better things. And pray that your spirit would just seal this word in our hearts and our minds. Um, and wherever I may have come short, I pray that your spirit would make up for it and, uh, and completely just help us to understand and to help us to walk in the way that would please you. And we're very thankful to you again. We give honor to you, God, and thank you for Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen.